All right, turn over with me once again, and we are in Exodus chapter 9, verses 13, all the way through the full of chapter 10. This was a long section of Scripture, and our brother Rob read excellently. For that, we are thankful. But now we're going to unpack some of the truths that are in this text, and we're going to highlight, zero in on this reality, the reality of heart problems. And that's the theme this morning as we turn. We're going to be talking about heart troubles, really in one way, heart disease. And immediately when that comes up, I think all of us are quite aware of the dangers of heart disease. We know that it's a big deal. Uh, You're probably aware heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Did you know one person dies from heart disease every 34 seconds? It's claimed Heart disease claimed nearly 700,000 Americans in 2020. That's one in every five deaths is claimed by heart disease. It's a big deal. And as big of a deal that is, and as much as if you haven't done so in a while, maybe you should go sign up to see your doctor doctor in probably six months because that's how long it takes to get in to see those guys. Uh, You should probably have your heart checked out. Well, as... Troubling as those statistics are, we are considering a heart trouble this morning that is actually far more concerning, if that were possible, far more consequential, because we're talking about spiritual heart disease. And the biblical word for that is a hard heart. It's dangerous. And as we've seen in the past weeks, as we've been walking through Exodus, and God's been sending these plagues. This is most dangerous. A hard heart is most deadly. Why? Because it cuts us off from God. A hard heart is one who's shutting the door on God, His Word, His truth, His mercy. We're cutting ourselves off from life. We're cutting ourselves off from Christ Himself. And so this morning, we're going to do some hard heart spiritual diagnostics to try and assess where is our soul this morning. Are we in a drift? Is our heart hardening? How can we spot such tendencies in our hearts? We need to look for these signs of heart disease, and we will root them out by His grace by faith. For in the end, what is a hard heart? It's one who shuts the door on God, and a heart that has been humbled and drawn is a heart that runs to Him, all sins included. So the word for us this morning is, do not harden your heart against God. For as you do so, understand you're trying to go to war with God. And that's not a war you can ever win. And furthermore, when you go to war with God, go to war with God, you're going to war against life itself. Your source of life is Christ. There's only hope for you in Him. So instead of hardening your heart, refusing to bend the knee, humble yourself. Find mercy. Return to the Lord. Discover His mercy again once more. And know that truth this morning. Do not harden your heart. So as we turn into the text, we're going to see really four aspects of the hardened heart. Really, again, if, if we're finding these tendencies in our heart, we know we might be in spiritual trouble indeed. And the first is this, is that the hardened heart opposes God's will. So then the soft heart is one that submits to His will, submits to His Word. We see that in Exodus 9, 13 through 16. And really, it can well be said that the most defining feature of a hard heart is is this. It opposes the will and word of God. It goes to war with God. And, of course, Pharaoh has proved that chief example of what that can look like 
And it really begins with what is a return, first a return to God's Word. As we come back to the text, we've gone through the first six plagues, we're starting with plague number seven, and where it begins is again a word to Pharaoh from God, let my people go. And let's see how the hard heart might respond. Let's look at verse 13, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, So again, this is the word of God coming to him. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. This has been that consistent call coming to Pharaoh, and it hasn't changed. But in in the main, Pharaoh's heart hasn't changed either. It's remained hard, obstinate, unwilling to give heed. And so there have been these so far what have been six plagues that have come to devastate Egypt. But now, God ups the ante, as it seems to have done throughout the plagues. They've intensified as we've gone. And in this time, they intensify because it's not merely a strike of pain, but this plague, if precautions are not taken, will mean death itself. And that's what's most evidently meant now as we look at verse 14. The Lord says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. Literally, I will send them, Pharaoh, on your heart, right against you. He goes on, on your servants and on your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. What is this all about? Why all the plagues? Why all the pain, the difficulty, the suffering? Well, it's this, the end of verse 14, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth, the Lord declares. That you will know me, Pharaoh. Remember when Moses first came to Pharaoh? What did Pharaoh say? Who's the Lord? Why should I respect him? Why should I let his people go? I don't know the Lord. Never heard of him. Well, you're going to know me now, the Lord says. As I send yet another plague. You will know not only my name, that I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, but you will know that I'm without comparison. In all the earth, let alone in Egypt. All of your gods are nothing to me. And you, the great king, supposedly, you are just a puny little man. You are not in control, Pharaoh. Your will doesn't win, mine does. For the Lord goes on to elaborate in verses 15 and 16 here. Why the plagues? Why the hard hearts? What is this about? Well, first realize this, Pharaoh, verse 15. For by now... Listen, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Or just more literally, you would have been just wiped away, like you were never there. I could just snap my fingers and Pharaoh, poof, you're gone. And then we're asking, well, why didn't you do it that way? Would have made the Scripture reading a lot shorter, that's for sure. Well, this isn't about making things go faster, is it? This whole ordeal is not about efficiency. There's a greater purpose here. And he gives it to us in two parts here in verse 16 now. He says, Why didn't I just snap my fingers and wipe you away? But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So there's a twofold purpose here to why God is doing it just the way He is. Because understand what's going on. God is the great director here. 
He wrote the script. He is the producer. He's setting the stage perfectly, precisely how he wants, and every character is fulfilling his role to a T because God's in control. And why? What is he for this? Why is he doing this? For this purpose, he says, number one, I have raised you up to show you my power. I'm doing it this way so I can show, I can flex a little bit. So you can get an idea of who I am and that no one can flex like me. Because note, according to purpose number two, what is this all about? Why why should we know his power? It's not so just Pharaoh can know something. But here's the second purpose, the more ultimate purpose. He says, the end of verse 16, so that my name my fame, my heritage, my praise may be proclaimed in all the earth. He's after his glory. He's after his credit. He's after his honor and praise that he is due, which is due across the whole globe. I'm not doing this so that you, little Pharaoh, would know something, or even the Egyptians would know just how powerful I am. I'm doing this so the world would know. This is why he made everything. Understand, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. I've put you here, put you here with that heart for this purpose. To show my glory. To show not only to you, but to the nations, to the world, that there would never again be anyone who would say, who's the Lord that I should fear Him? And we have such, actually, an excellent example of this. Later on, that unfolds in Scripture. I think it's an account you're you're rather familiar with. See, the story of Israel getting out of Egypt and the way they get out of Egypt, that story spreads fast in the ancient world. Such that a little bit later on, of course, what happens? Israel gets out of Egypt, right? And they will go to Mount Sinai, they'll meet with God, and then they'll go with God there and they'll wander in the wilderness, and then they'll go to the cusp of the Promised Land. They'll cross the Jordan River, and they're going to go take over the Promised Land just as God had promised. Well, before they ever get there, the, the word has been going out, hey, there's this God, he d- destroyed the most powerful nation and king in the world, Egypt, and he's got a people that he favors, and they're coming our way. And so that made the people who heard about it in the promised land a bit scared. Because when they first entered the promised land, what was that first city that they captured? Do you remember? It's Jericho. And do you remember how the Lord conquered Jericho? You probably remember that. Remember, he flexes his muscles there too. Because how does Jericho get conquered? Well, the people powerfully and mightily walk around the city seven times every day. And then the, the walls just come tumbling down, don't they? Did they do that? No, of course not. That's the power of God. And all those then in Jericho were killed save one prostitute and her family. Who was that? Rahab. She was spared. Why? Because she harbored the Israelite spies. Remember, they had sent spies to come scope out the land. They had gone into Jericho, and they would, of course, have been killed because they're going to give away the city. But they were hidden by Rahab, and she even lied about that to the other Jericho authorities and kept them safe. But why did she hide them? Well, she's just a Evil person, I guess, you know, betraying her city, being a traitor. No, that's not it at all. Why did she hide them when they showed up? Here's what it says. Here's what she confesses to the Jewish spies on the roof. Here's what she says in Joshua chapter 2. She says, 
I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you Jews the land. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts here melted. Why? For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The stories about you go before you. We already understand there's no one like your God. We, we saw that with the things he did in Egypt. We saw that as he split the Red Sea. We see that with all that he's doing and bringing you here. We don't stand a chance. So she recognized the folly of opposing such a God like this. So what does she do? She doesn't run from God. She falls at his feet and begs for mercy to these spies. And she gets it. She's spared. Putting her life in the Lord's hand, the Lord spares her. Well, back to the Exodus. We have Pharaoh's heart. He's not ready to bend. He's actually being held up in his rebellious heart that won't let God's people go. And God's doing this, again, as we've noted, to show his power. He's this great director. He's the screenwriter. He's the producer. He's the stage director. Enter stage right, Pharaoh, and you're going to stand there so I can show my power. In this way, Pharaoh, you're going to be like even your hardened heart. You're going to be like that perfect black mat that a jeweler uses to highlight the beauty of the diamond. You know these, right? Especially you men, if you've gone and bought a diamond ring. You go into the jeweler's place, and you see this case, and there's all these pretty diamonds, and they've got price tags on them, and you're hoping maybe that one that I can actually afford would look nice. And so you're like, well, let me see that one. And they go, okay. And then they pull it out from the case, and then what do they do? They pull out that, like, black carpet thing, and they put the, that, that seems to absorb all the light. Looks like nothing's there. And then they put that one lone diamond, and it just shines all the light and looks with its beauty against the contrast of the black all around it. Well, that's what God's doing with Pharaoh's heart. He is that black mat, and God is putting His power and His glory in the middle for us all to see and look and marvel. In other words, Pharaoh, you can keep resisting. You you can keep insisting on your own way, your own will, your own glory, your own honor, but you're never going to win. And even even the more you do it, the more you're just going to show how great I am. See, God will, and this is true for Pharaoh, it's true for you this morning, He will receive all the glory in the end. And He's either going to do it through you or over you. Either through you because you submit to His Lordship, you bow and say, oh God, would you be merciful? And He's merciful in Christ. And so then what do you do? You, you thank Him. Because, you know, you don't deserve that. You go, oh, praise God, He is gracious in Christ. Or you resist. And He's going to get His glory over you. And He will get His glory as your judge. As He forces you in the end still to bend the knee and confess, Jesus is Lord. But you can say that He's not your Savior. Because it's too late. You were made for Him. He will get glory from you. 
a friend this morning, will you submit and give him the glory now as a gracious Savior and Lord, or will he have to take it from you as he did with Pharaoh? For that is the example of the hard heart. It's one that opposes the very will of God to glorify himself instead of us. The hardened heart also betrays God's mercy, which is what we see next. As we look at verses 17 to 35, a hardened heart betrays God's mercy. And so the soft heart then would be one that is changed, revolutionized by His mercy. Let's see this. We look now at verse 17 and we see that Pharaoh, he's in no place to humble himself before God. He's not able to do this. He's still exalting himself. The Lord says as much. Look at verse 17. You, Pharaoh, are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And so because of his pride, now another promise of a coming plague arrives. And it's the promise now of a hailstorm. One like that has never, ever before seen or been experienced. The point is, this is not like little ice cubes falling from the sky. This is a hailstorm mixed with fire. Such that right away, even as judgment's coming, understand this hailstorm is going to destroy everything. And note this, God knows this, and yet, and He knows Pharaoh's hard heart, He knows the Egyptians' hard heart, and yet He speaks a word of warning, which is a word of mercy. God knows how devastating this is going to be, and in His compassion, He says, but there's a way you can avoid it if you will trust my word and do what I say. Look at verse 19. He mercifully warns them. Now, therefore, He commands them even, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. This hail is lethal. It's not just going to soak you or pelt you or bruise you. It's going to crush you. And somehow, whether it's with lightning, but it will burn you. It's going to feel like the sky literally falls down and just crushes you. You need to get inside, he warns, or you will die. And so then the question is, but will you believe this word? Will you humble yourself enough to say, I was wrong? The Lord sounds wise. I will heed the warning. Or will you harden your heart and ignore His word? And we see both responses come from those who are in Egypt. Some, they're fearing God. They run everybody inside. They're thinking, I've had enough of these plagues. Let's get out of here. Others ignore the merciful warning, and for that they pay the price. And that's the price of a hardened heart. It's a terrible price. The effects are devastating. Just pictured in a small way here. Look at verse 25 now. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. The land is devastated. Just utterly destroyed. Except, of course, for anywhere Israel was. Verse 26. But what's the point? This is no indiscriminate storm. This is no accident. This is the direct judgment of the hand of God upon Egypt. And the very same hand that saves and protects His people. And even this 
now is beginning to dawn on Pharaoh, such that he cries out to Moses, crying out to the Lord, Oh, be merciful. This seems like good news. We're having a turn of events, right? Well, we've been here before, haven't we? If you've been with us in Exodus. But this seems different as we look to verse 27. Just looking there, note Pharaoh's earnestness this time in his pleas. And also notice his theological precision. This is good news. Look at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. I mean, this is beautiful, isn't it? He gets it, and he doesn't merely ask for relief, but he owns and confesses his sins. I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. He's right to judge us. We were wrong to disobey. We've disobeyed him. I mean, at this point, it's like Moses and Aaron want to, yes, let's reach in, let's grab hands, let's pray the sinner's prayer now with you. I mean, these seem like the words of a broken man, a repentant man. Seems like a man who's been humbled and he's ready to get grace. And he gets it because he asks for it. Moses agrees to pray and plead for him. And yet, at the same time, even as the Lord grants mercy, this is the mercy of our God, he's going to give mercy to Pharaoh, and yet, even in the midst of it, he knows Pharaoh doesn't yet fear him. Look at verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. It all sounds good, Pharaoh. The Puritans would be proud of your theological precision. But I, I'm not into the words I see into your heart, and I know you're not there yet. You're speaking better than what your heart actually believes. I know you don't yet fear God. And so Moses explains why that's the case. See that most of the crops from the hail have been totally devastated, but some of the crops had not yet sprouted, and so they thought, oh, we're going to have food. It's just going to come late. And again, the mercy of God, even though he knows this about Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh asks for mercy, and he gets some. What a gracious God. But that also means Pharaoh's response next after this comes as no surprise, especially to God. Look at verse 34 then. But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so it says in verse 35, Pharaoh didn't let God's people go. In other words, Pharaoh repented of his repenting. In other words, he really never repented at all. And so once again, what have we seen? Pharaoh's, his sudden foxhole faith just dissipates once the war is over. And he doesn't need to be in the foxhole. And it's interesting then because Pharaoh had expressed his repentance so precisely. I mean, it was such a good confession of sin. He said all the right words, but God saw right into his heart, and he knew he wasn't repentant. It was all a show, and it proved itself as the text unfolded. Why? Because Pharaoh wasn't changed. That's why. And that's the difference. 
That is, there was no difference. It was the same hard heart, just couched in more religious words. And that's a particular warning to all of us in this room, especially a church that prides itself on right theology, doctrinal precision, and theological accuracy. But we see all the right theology can come out of your mouth. And you might even think yourself sincere. But if receiving such mercy from God in Christ has not revolutionized your life, then, friend, you've not been born again. You haven't been redeemed. You may know all the right words to say. You may have memorized great Puritan prayers to say them. You may have the largest theological library. You may memorize the longest passages of Scripture. You may have read through the Bible scores of times. You may attend church every Sunday in your life, even when it's on Christmas. That's coming, by the way. You might give your tithe. You might serve in your own little comfortable ways. You might even invite church friends into your home. But if His undeserved kindness has not changed you, has not broken you, if His mercy that you didn't deserve in the least, that you really had no right to expect at all, if that mercy does not turn your life upside down, then friend, I don't think you've ever tasted it. Because the mercy of Christ is so good, it revolutionizes your life. It has to. And if it has not, then I would say, well, you have yet to come with grips of either, first, how great and glory and power God is, or second, how much you have disobeyed Him and dishonored Him and He has rights to judge you. Because you have yet to come to appreciate what Christ has done for a sinner like you. What it means that Christ saved you when you were not His friend, you were not at first some noble person that He would rightly die for. No, what were you? You were an enemy of God, Romans 5 talks about. And yet that highlights with how magnificent His mercy is, that you were an enemy, that He came to love, to die, and to win. But if you cannot yet see your sin and cannot see His glory that you have affronted, you cannot see how great His mercy is, and then that means you will never see and be changed. Because His grace isn't really all that good to you until you see those things. You take it for granted, you think you deserve it, really. And how can we say that? Well, because it hasn't changed you. In contrast, consider the mantra, really, of Paul's life, which is a changed life, the apostle, how his life was revolutionized by the grace of Christ. First, we hear about his new life. You know this verse, maybe you've memorized it, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. His whole life is dedicated to the purpose of Christ. But why? Well, he says this, I live by faith in the Son of God who? Who what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. It was that reality that he knows what Christ has done for a sinner like him that turned his life upside down. He lived a changed life because he knew that Christ was now in him by grace. He lived a changed life because he came to know how merciful Christ was to him that he didn't deserve. 
He lived a changed life because he knew Christ died for him. Don't reform or repent in word only, but repent with a revolutionized life. That is the new birth. That's a new heart. Third, the hardened heart adjusts God's commands. A heart that's hard is one that will not receive what God has demanded, but adjusts them, changes them, adapts them. But instead, we must receive, accept all of His terms. We see this as we turn in chapter 10 now of Exodus. Of course, Pharaoh is the archetype, bad example here. And we see his heart is proud. He's confronted with the Word of God, and he cannot receive it, so he's going to change it, adjust it, make it more palatable. He's figuring out, I think in part, that he cannot go to war in God and win, so he's going to try and negotiate with God. Well, here's how it goes. Verse 3 of chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long, Pharaoh, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. That doesn't sound new, does it? For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. This is no ordinary onset of bugs. It's a locust swarm that covers all of Egypt like a blanket eating and munching every little green thing they, met, they latch onto, which in the end just leaves it a wasteland. Uh, one Bible scholar noted a locust will consume its own weight each day. Locust swarms have been known to cover as many as 400 square miles, and even one square mile could teem with over 100 million insects. Gross. Everywhere you look, you can't even see the earth. It's just bugs. Laura Ingalls Wilder explains seeing something like this in Minnesota, and she's running as the swarms are coming, and everywhere she steps, it's just squish, 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 all the way into the house. The ground, the trees, all the bushes, they're all just black, and they seem to be breathing as the locusts are devouring each one with each bite. What does this mean? In the end, Egypt would surely be ruined. But Pharaoh, he's, he's set on his way here. Who cares? Such that Moses gives the message, turns around, and leaves Pharaoh's court. We see that at the end of verse 6. But evidently, Pharaoh's servants care, and they're not wanting to go on this ride, so they try and talk some sense into Pharaoh. Verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve their Lord, the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? But this is what a hardened heart does. It will ruin itself in its rebellion. It will destroy itself. And yet, as this word, even from his servants, comes, Pharaoh seems to come to his senses at least for a moment. And he's going to relent to give up the Jews. So note this, verse 8, he says, yeah, you got a point. Let's go call Moses and Aaron back. It says, verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. 
finally. Uh, but. And the Hebrew just says, who? Who's going to go? Who are the ones to go? And so then Moses says, well, everybody, even our flocks. Verse 9, Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh will have none of it. And then he makes this most ironic comment. Look at verse 10. But Pharaoh said to him, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. That's kind of the point. The Lord is with us, and that's why you're going to let us go. But his hard heart won't see it. Such that, as he says, the end of verse 10, Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. I'll let your men go and worship, but your kids can't go with you. Why? What's he afraid of? Maybe he's afraid, well, if they leave, they're, they're going to implement some horrible plan. If they leave with the kids, maybe they'll go team up with some of Egypt's enemies and come and attack Egypt or something like this. So no, your kids got to stay behind. You can't leave with them because the Jews would never dare attack if their kids were here. and They'd always have to come back to get their kids, right? So Pharaoh's going to have none of it, though. No. I mean, he makes the concession, but he won't let the kids go. Look at verse 11. No. Go the men among you, as in the men only, and they can go serve the Lord, for that's what you are asking. No way. You can't go. You can't take the kids. And then he has the audacity to add, for that's what you're really asking. Well, no, it's not. But thanks for telling God what he really wants, because I don't think he was sure. And yet, this is the presumption of a hard heart. We will tell back to God what we think He really wants instead of just listening to His Word that He's given us. We may even entertain. I don't know why we do this. Something about our spiritually sick minds, right? But we will entertain God's Word. We'll entertain something of God's Word, but not fully. We'll take God's Word as something like advice, not as law, not something authoritative. Oh, God's more like my coach. He's like, root me on. He's giving me little tidbits so I can have a, a better forward pass or whatever. He's not going to make demands on me. And so with that approach, we adapt His Word. We adapt His message more to our liking. Like advice, we become pick-and-choose Christians with His Word. We feel free to take it and leave it as we would. And so thus, Christians have adjusted God's demands in various ways, especially on those ways and topics that our culture finds right now so offensive. Though God's Word clearly declares that God made mankind male and female, in the name of love, so many Christians are affirming the gender confusion, the therapies and surgeries to try and align a healthy body with a wayward heart. Though God's Word clearly states that marriage is between a man and a woman and that all other sexual relationships are wrong, and yet you have so-called churches in the name of love receiving and so condoning same-sex relationships that God in His Word has said are sinful. 
and not only condoning them, but receiving them into membership and so affirming their faith and then ordaining some into ministry. Instead of God's Word shaping us, we are shaping the Word. We are trying to be Lord over it. Now, in a more conservative Christian context, we might say to those things, Amen, how dare they? You know, change God's Word to accommodate the culture. But of course, may we be careful of our own self-righteousness. May we not be guilty of the very same things in our personal life. When God's Word makes such a clear demand on us, we maybe redefine it. But in our sophistication, we might even do so by going to the Word, trying to pit God's Word against itself. Oh, I should be praying more, but I trust God anyway. He's in control. Oh, I should really help the poor, but I figure they're going to do something bad with it, so I'm not going to. I know I should share the gospel more, but I don't want to cast my pearls before swine. You know, I really should disciple and invest in my kid's spiritual life, but we got a youth pastor for that. Awesome. Yeah, I know what his word literally says, but God, I think I know what you actually want. No, he wants what his word has said. I mean, hear the call of our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, when he says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? We have no business to call him our Lord if we will not obey his words, whatever he tells us and calls us to do. It's, is he our Lord or is he not? So understand, if our hearts would be soft, if they would be open to the Lord, we will have to be open to all of His words, which means to a person in this room, we're going to be convicted. We're going to be challenged. We're going to be confronted. But we cannot then adjust or change His word to assuage the confrontation and guilt. No, we have to take it head on and then run right back to Him. That's the soft heart. The hard heart says, I'm not going to change, so I'm going to change your word instead. The soft heart instead will say, Lord, I'm convicted. Please be merciful. Help me follow you. Because finally then, what defines the hardened heart? It's one that finally and fully rejects God. Keeps running from God. Shuts the door on God where the soft heart is one that maybe with sins and all runs back to him again and again looking for mercy. So even still, Pharaoh here, he's persisting. He's holding on to God's people. And so another plague comes, this time without warning. And it's this time the plague of the darkest of darkness. Verse 21 of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And the idea probably in the Hebrew is not that you would literally feel the darkness on your body, but that it's so dark, the only way to get around is you have to feel about to get around. This is pitch darkness. It's like the dead of night when you wake up and there's no light in your room, except the light never comes when the sun rises. It's like there's this protective dome of darkness, somehow, supernaturally, shutting out all light. 
such that, verse 23, we hear the effects of this. It halts all operations in Egypt. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they had lived. Again, because this is supernatural. This is not some sandstorm that darkens the sky. This is the judgment of God. And this cannot hold. They need light. And so Pharaoh calls out to Moses once more. And he's granting the concession. Okay, you're saying your children got to go? They can go. And then in verse 25, Moses comes back and asks, well, he didn't mention our animals. Verse 26, our livestock also must go with us, he says. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. But Pharaoh will have none of this, and he effectively shuts the door on God. Second thought, forget this conversation. We're done, Pharaoh. Or excuse me, we're done, Moses. Get out of here. This whole conversation's over. Verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For in the day, or for the day you see it, my face, you shall die. I want nothing more to do with you or your God. And at that vehement rejection, God lets Pharaoh have his way. Put in the words of Moses here, verse 29. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Fine, Pharaoh. You can have what you want. You don't have to see me again. And so God gives him over. He gives Pharaoh the exact thing he wanted to hear no more about this God. No more talk about having to let the Jews go. His heart then, as we would understand, has been permanently, it seems, hardened to God. Now, what accounts for Pharaoh's hard heart? Why is it hard like this? Well, we skipped over verse 27, and let's look at it now because it brings some light to this question. Why was Pharaoh so defiant? Look at verse 27 then. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. So God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart so Pharaoh would reject God? Yes, but there's more nuance to it than that, even from this very verse. And first, to then survey what we've seen as we've walked through these plagues, Numerous times we've seen that the text tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, like you hear in verse 27. In other texts, like Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, we hear that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then there are other texts that just say his Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, not expressly telling us who hardened it, whether it was God or Pharaoh. And so which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And maybe you can already guess the answer. Yes, to quote Rich Ryan. Yes, they're both true, if that's possible, and I think it is. Even as we look more carefully at this verse, verse 27. Uh, to look at that, I need to give you a different translation that parallels the Hebrew a bit more precisely there in verse 27. The Legacy Bible tries to get at this when it renders it this way, but Yahweh Harden Pharaoh's heart, and it adds, with strength. Or even more literally, you could just translate it this way. 
Yahweh strengthened Pharaoh's heart. That's the very word used. Yahweh strengthens Pharaoh's heart. See, the Exodus text throughout all of this, it's described Pharaoh's hardened heart in three different ways. It said at times his heart is heavy. It said at times that his heart is hard as in stiff, unbending. But it's also described sometimes as strong. God has strengthened his heart. And what does this mean? He's given Pharaoh backbone. He's strengthened Pharaoh's resolve to want what he wants no matter the consequences. Because here's the point. It wasn't as if Pharaoh was sitting around going, Oh, I fear and worship God. Whatever He asks me, I will do. I would do the right thing. But God, why won't you let me? Why are you hardening my heart? No. He never wanted to let God's people go. He never wanted to hear about the Lord. He doesn't want God. He doesn't want His will. And so the Lord steals His resolve to not want God. And that way to give Him over to that hard heart to such a degree that He will fully reject God. And finally, now there's more to this question, specifically well, how can this be fair? I mean, we're all disobedient. Why are some people strengthened in their resolve to disbelieve? And why are some mercifully brought to believe? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul deals with that question straight on in Romans 9. We'll look at that next week. But suffice it now to say this, a hardened heart will never turn to God fully in the end. A hardened heart will shut the door on God, forget God, run from God. Why? Because there's something that's holding them back. Whether it's a sin, it's a guilty pleasure, some dream, some ambition, such that when God's Word and demands conflict with that, we reject that Word, we reject that God. And eventually, to such a degree, we don't even turn back. And when you turn your back on Christ, finally and fully, there is no forgiveness. There is no mercy for you because there's nowhere else to turn. Mercy is only found with Christ in His name. And maybe some of you hear that and you're fearful. Maybe trepidation. You're thinking, well, I've rejected Christ. I've been tolerating these things in my life. And maybe you're concerned and you're scared. And I would say, take courage that you have a spiritual concern, that's very good news that God is actually working in your heart, drawing you. Because by the end, Pharaoh, he's not concerned. That, that concern might very well be a sign of God's grace that you have a spiritually sensitive heart, not a dead one. And so to that, may we all again this morning seize that gospel promise. Drive this into your heart, what the Lord says in John 6, 37. He says this, our Lord says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There's not one drawing near to Jesus asking for mercy that he will ever shun away, ever, in this life. So don't sit back and wait. Don't sit back with your compromising. Don't sit back saying, but I really love this pet thing. No, come. Come confessing your sins, confessing your compromises, confessing the ways that you have failed Him. Confess it, but then come and know by the gospel's promise His mercy that you will never be cast out clinging to Him. Let's praise Him for this.